Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I am Garland Nixon, running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who's off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Biden is holding talks with NATO allies and Senator Rand Paul is pushing back against his party in favor of re-entering the Iran nuclear deal. Joining us to discuss this, we have journalist, author and speaker Caleb Moffin. Caleb, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. Uh, before we get going on the news, Caleb, I understand uh, you had, you've got big things going on with CPI. To, uh, if you could start off by telling our viewers about CPI, where they can find out, and what you guys are up to. Oh, sure. We're the Center for Political Innovation, cpiusa.org. Um, and we just had a great conference in Austin, Texas, and uh, we continue to uh, Try and build a an alternative perspective, anti-imperialism and socialism, a, a think tank uh, we're, we're building across the country. We're looking to have some other events soon, uh, probably in the Chicago area. Working out the details of that now. So exciting stuff! Check us out. All right. So Caleb and uh, and uh, where what's your on Twitter? Oh sure, you can. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter at Caleb Moppin. You know, C A L E B M A U P I N. Uh, but you can check out, um, you know, CPI is also on Twitter, cpiusa.org, uh, cpiusa, at cpiusa. All right. Well, Pre- President Biden has been in uh, Europe recently, and he's uh, there uh, having emergency talks uh, with uh, NATO, and I use this word guardedly, allies. Um, I, and I would say th- like this, with friends like him, NATO doesn't need enemies. But let me ask you something. My, here are my thoughts. I feel like Joe Biden is there. Because he knows there are significant cracks because he, the people in NATO are getting the heat. They're, the countries are starting to get blowback from their um, sanctions and their suffering and that he knows he's got problems and he's there trying to shore up a coalition that I suspect is starting to, to drift. And as the blowback from the sanctions increase, I suspect that those drifts will fracture. At any rate, your thoughts. Oh, sure. I mean, you look into the details uh, of the situation here. The Belgian prime minister has spoken up. Macron has spoken up. Uh, Even the U.N. general uh, secretary, uh, Antonio Gutierrez, has spoken up about the impact on fuel prices and fertilizer prices and the impact of, you know, the all out sanctions from the United States against Russia. And the impact uh, of of this conflict is quite massive. You know, at this point, uh, the oil traders around the world, you know, the oil market watchers are predicting that we're going to be up to $200 a barrel probably by the end of 2022. I mean, you want to talk about high prices. I mean, you know, the highest oil prices in history were originally right after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. But now we've exceeded that. I mean, we're seeing the highest oil prices in history once again, and they keep going up. Uh, the impact this is going to have is going to be massive. And, you know, in Europe, it, it's hurting the European economy. They can't trade with Russia the same way they used to. But it's also, I mean, especially in, in Africa, in Haiti and places like that. I mean, you know, in, in countries where people are barely, barely surviving, when you double the price of fuel, uh, you double the price of gasoline, you prevent fertilizer from being exported from Russia. I mean, you're taking people's lives at that point. I mean, that, that's, that's a life or death question to a lot of people. And we don't seem to think about that in the United States. There's all this humanitarian concern, 
uh, being expressed by our leaders for what's going on in Ukraine, but they're not thinking about the global humanitarian impact of what they're doing right now, which is far greater than what's taking place in one country. Uh, what's the term? There's, there's a phrase you always use. It starts with a government of action. What is that phrase? Oh, sure. I've, I've often said we need a government of action that will fight for working families. Uh, and that, I, I think we absolutely need that. You know, we need a government that will step up to the plate and make sure that American families have what they need to survive and, and, you know, organize the economy to serve public good, not just the profits of a wealthy few. A government of action, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, this notion that in the United States we have a government, the government is best, it governs least, you know, let the economy take care of itself, challenging that, but instead have a government that takes swift, decisive action to get things done, uh, to, to come to the aid of people, to make sure uh, that, that the crisis we're in is, is resolved and, and, you know, build up our economy. That's kind of the idea when we talk about a government of action. Let me tell you why I said that. Because what we now have is the opposite. This is a these these this is phrases that's going to come. I'm going to start. This is our first segment, but this is going to run as a theme throughout the show today. President Biden said Thursday with regard to food shortages. Yes, we did talk about food shortages and it's going to be real. The price of the sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. The president of the United States just said, I am sanctioning my own country and the Europeans so I can some kind of symbolically way get at, at, at Vladimir Putin. It is unconscionable. It is me hearing a government. A government is supposed to act on behalf of its citizens. How far have we gotten from reality when we say our government says you're going to pay more for gas? You're going to pay more for food. Oh, and by the way, you're going to get higher inflation. But the good news is you're going to get some kind of symbolic victory that only matters to me and the neocons. That's kind of sick, Caleb. Your thoughts on all of that? Well, it fits in with kind of the way things have gone since the pandemic. The ultra monopolies of Silicon Valley, uh, Amazon, uh, you know, you've got the big oil monopolies, you've got Walmart. Uh, they do the best in the storm. You know, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when when you talk about, you know, in farming, uh, you know, if there's a, a crop failure and a famine, uh, the biggest farms survive and the farms that are smaller, they go under. And uh, when you have a, an economic crisis like this, when you have a, you know, you know, a global pandemic or you have what we have now with rising prices everywhere and, you know, the the smaller ones are going to get crushed and the monopolies can secure their their place at the center of the economy. And that's really what's happening here. And I think that, you know, that that kind of the strategy of the ultra monopolies for keeping their their monopolistic position is kind of, you know, prolonging the storm, so to speak, and, you know, continuing to just kind of let things crash and burn so that all their competitors uh, can just be eliminated. And they have the capital, they have the position, they have the end with the politicians, and they'll survive the storm. And when it's all over, they'll have absolute dominance. And I think that that's how, that's how things are being played out right now when people talk about the Great Reset and such. And it's, it's quite disturbing to see this because it's not benefiting average Americans. It's not benefiting the global economy. Um, but it's a way to secure the position of the ultra-monopolist. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg told the news conference in Brussels, NATO is not part of the conflict. But NATO provides support to Ukraine but isn't part of the conflict. NATO will not send the troops into Ukraine. It is extremely important to prevent this conflict becoming a full-fledged war between NATO and Russia. Here's why I say that. I, I, personally, I think it is possible 
that NATO a la World War I could stumble into a war or into a conflict with Russia, but they really don't want it. That being said, there is a war, but it is an economic war that they're waging. But in the same way that the U.S. I mean, excuse me, that the U.S. slash NATO is saying we're going to sacrifice the lives of as many Ukrainians as we can in favor of this neocon project with their sanctions, they're saying the same thing about their own people. We're going to sacrifice the lives. We're going to sacrifice the livelihoods, the futures of their children, their economic well-being and welfare. We're going to sacrifice anything we can, and in particular our own people in this economic war, on behalf of some neocon project that is doomed to fail. Caleb. Sure. And I think that, you know, in the Pentagon, we have some people looking at this and saying, look, we're not going to have an all-out shooting war with Russia, Biden. You know, we can't do that um, because if that happens, uh, you know, we're going to be met with a level of military might that can inflict real consequences on the world. And who knows, that could even lead to a nuclear exchange. And I I think that there's a a realization about this and all these people out there calling for a no-fly zone and all this don't quite get it. But the other disturbing fact about this is that, yes, they don't want to send combat troops into Ukraine because they know that would mean war with Russia. But there are a number of NATO advisors in Ukraine. Uh, There are a number of U.S. military personnel that have been training the Ukrainian military, and those forces are still there. So there are U.S. military personnel in Ukraine. They're just not there in a combat capacity. And that itself is very dangerous because what if one of them gets killed? And, you know, what if what if one of them is is hit, you know, in a in a in a strike, an airstrike? What if one of them, you know, gets caught up in an area where there's a, a firefight and shooting going on? I mean, this is potentially very dangerous. And then what what is going to happen if one of these trainees from the United States or Britain or France, one of these advisors, uh, what if, you know, one of them gets killed, then that government is going to be obligated to respond some way. Uh, and that could lead to a very dangerous situation, because if, if the NATO countries don't respond to one of their personnel being killed, uh, then you have a, a situation where uh, that would, you know, they would see that as sending a message to Russia that it's OK to attack their people. Uh, and so they're going to feel like they have to respond. And that is all extremely, extremely dangerous. And so, you know, I mean, these statements we're hearing about, you know, the USA and NATO are not, you know, they're they're supporting Ukraine, but they are not actually in this conflict. Uh, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of strategists saying yes, and we need to do everything possible to keep it that way. Well, you know, I suspect that a number of them were, in fact, killed in the missile strikes in Lviv. But I also suspect that the, both that missile strike and the use of hypersonic uh, um, weapons was both a military act and a um, geopolitical act, and in that it was a reminder that Russia was serious and that Russia has the capability um, to defend itself, so if, if necessary. So, I mean, we don't know, but that's my suspicions. Let's go to Iran for a moment, moment and that is your thoughts. The U.S., it's kind of weird. The U.S. is in a bad situation. They need oil. And they understand what's coming. They go to Iran to ostensibly ask Iran to help them out. But there's, you know, there's so much hubris that they're still having trouble um, getting a deal with Iran because they still want to make demands of Iran. And Iran says, hey, look, if you want our oil, it's going to be on our terms. And we've told you our terms all along. You drop the sanctions. We sell the oil. And apparently Iran saying you're not going to tell us whether or not we can do business with uh, with Russia. But at any rate, now Senator Rand Paul is backing out, saying, I'm not going with the Republicans. I think it was a mistake to get out of the Iran deal. Your thoughts on the U.S.'s interactions with Iran? Well, again, 
you know, the Trump administration was focused on attacking Iran, focused on attacking Venezuela, but wasn't that concerned really about Russia. Whereas it seems the Biden administration is obsessed with Russia. And, you know, if we can make a deal with Iran and get Iran a little closer to us and pull distance from from Russia, make them a little further away from Russia, we can do that with Venezuela. Well, that would all be okay. And I think this is, you know, kind of grand strategy uh, politics versus kind of short-term interest groups. The Trump was very close to the Netanyahu faction in Israel. He was very close to the Shahs of Sunset Park, you know, the, the Pahlavi family and the wealthy Iranian exile community. Uh, Trump was very close to the, uh, the Miami Cubans, and they wanted to go after Venezuela, and they wanted to go after Iran. And Russia was not really on their radar screen, whereas, you know, Biden, you know, comes out of he's got, you know, a staff full of people that come out of that Brzezinski School of Foreign Policy that are thinking, how can we make sure that the United States maintains its dominance globally? Who is our biggest long term competitor They're You know, they're studying Brzezinski. I believe Obama, you know, comes out of Columbia University and the, the School of Communist Studies, which is now called the International Relations School or something like that at Columbia University, where Brzezinski kind of trained all kinds of people to think in this geostrategic way. They're thinking, how can we go after Russia? And they're not as concerned about about smaller countries that might be aligned with Russia. They don't have the kind of the short term vendetta that we see on the part of a lot of these uh, a lot of these particular constituencies that are in the Republican Party. So I think that's the divide that we're seeing there. And that, yeah, Biden is thinking long term. Uh, and and can we make a deal with some of Russia's friends to, to distance them from Russia to, you know, to weaken kind of the burden on them? at the same time that we kind of go all in against Russia. You know, there's a we hadn't talked to discuss this, but there is a some uh, breaking news today that I did want to get your thoughts on. Former uh, President Donald Trump filed a lawsuit on Thursday against 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, the DNC and numerous top Democratic officials for what he for what he called, quote, a far reaching conspiracy, unquote, to tarnish his 2016 presidential bid to tying uh, by tying it to Russia. Your thoughts? Very interesting. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if that is allowed to go to trial. Um, and I'm sure that that uh, there will be a lot of testimony and that there's a very strong case to be made uh, that, that, yeah, that whole thing was cooked up to hurt his reputation. And especially now with what's going on in Ukraine now, I mean, you know, yes, at the time it, it looked very bad for Trump. and It was used against Trump. But now that that Russia is just being accused of every crime under the sun. I mean, this is this is, you know, something that is doing potentially long term not potentially. I mean, it has done long-term damage to Trump's image. And if Trump wants to be a future political figure, and, and if his um, his businesses want to continue to flourish around the world, um, he needs to make clear uh, that no, he's not a Russian puppet, and that you know, you know, maybe he wants to have better relations with them because that's common sense. But he was never working for the Kremlin, and that a lot of the outrageous stuff that was said against him, he he needs to have his day in court and say this isn't true, and that it has done damage to him, not just in his political career, but also in his business career too, right? And the, the labeling of Trump as a Russian asset and such. I mean, uh, right now with this all-out hysterical campaign against Russia, I mean, the damage that that has probably done to his businesses around the world, et cetera, is, is probably massive. So it makes sense for him to take this move. Interesting breaking news. And it's interesting for this reason. Two words discovery and depositions. 
<laughs> those, if this moves forward through discovery, the Trump team would have the opportunity to get all the emails and everything related, notes, you name it, related to that from the Clinton campaign and the people that they're talking about. And they would be able to depose them and question them. And under deposition, they don't have Fifth Amendment rights. So this could uh, open a can of a, 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 a pretty interesting can of worms. You know, here's something I wanted to ask you since we, we got a little bit of time left. South America, Central America, Nicaragua, etc. In the short term, certainly there's going to be issue with Russian and Ukrainian wheat and food supplies. And, and, and who knows? In reality, this thing could be over in April or May and they could get those things back online and possibly maybe there'd be a blip in food, but maybe it wouldn't be too long. Who knows? Fertilizer. But... In the long run, it looks like something's really being created here, I think, in this new block. And the U.S. has so oppressed these countries, the, the socialist countries of South America and Cuba and kept them outside of SWIFT and everything. In the medium to the long term, this could be a tremendous opportunity for some of the, you know, for the Nicaraguans and Venezuelans and Cubans of, of the world. Your thoughts? Well, sure. And I mean, a lot of people are not aware of how much support for Russia there is in South America and Central America right now. Uh, and not just in the you know anti-imperialist and socialist countries, but also also in places like Brazil, in places like Argentina and Chile, there have been a lot of people taking to the streets supporting Russia. There's a lot of admiration for Russia, um, and also at this point, uh, you know, the United States is kind of reconfiguring its foreign policy to focus exclusively on going after Russia, which might mean that they might you know loosen some of the attacks uh, that they've done on on these countries in Central America and try to you know, try to open the door of maybe having dialogue. The fact that the U.S. government met with Maduro's administration, uh, that's that's certainly significant. Uh, Marco Rubio was very angry about it. Um, you can you can tell he was very furious about it. And the Juan Guaido people were very angry about it. So uh, there is potential for relations with some of these socialist countries and anti-imperialist states in Latin America to get better, for sure. Um, but at the same time, those countries have a very, very deep relationship with Russia. Uh, the, the more hostile the USA got to them, the closer their relationship with Russia became. So as a result of that, um, it's going to be quite difficult, I think, to, you know, to get them to you know, you know, move against Russia or do any favors for the United States at Russia's expense. I think that, that might be very, very difficult for U.S. officials to pull off, especially after everything that's been done to them. I mean, this, the, the devastating sanctions on Venezuela, uh, you know, I mean, the, the coup attempt, uh, you know, I mean, all kinds of things. And it's going to be very difficult to just say, OK, well, we, we, we now hate Russia now. So uh, so we'll be nicer to you. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily going to trust the United States when it comes to that kind of thing. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Caleb Maupin. Uh, you can find him. Well, uh, what's your uh, website again, Caleb? C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N.com. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. 
President Biden said Thursday that, quote, with regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages and it's going to be real. He also said the price of the sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. As Additionally, he referred to a new world order that must be led by the U.S. Joining us to discuss Africa and the golden and, and the global South's place in the realigned world order after the Ukraine crisis, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston. He's an author, a historian, and a researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there's a lot, a whole lot, there's a whole lot of meat and potatoes in those statements. Unfortunately, when we start talking about the global south and the developing nations, it's just the opposite. Um, When he's talking about the food shortage, that's going to be real for them, realer than it will be in even probably the United States in in the EU. Your thoughts on Africa's place, what's going to happen with the sanctions and in the long run, you know, the, the, the immediate, the medium term and the long run where Africa fits in in this realignment? Well, in the immediate term, the news is not good. As you know, Russia and Ukraine are major powers with regard to the agricultural market, particularly wheat, particularly uh, certain cooking oils like sunflower oil, particularly fertilizers. A disproportionate percentage of their exports in those realms go to North Africa and West Asia. And already we see signs, not least in Egypt, that there is a bit of unrest that is brewing. And we all know that historically, the question of food has been a major question in stirring unrest. I would be remiss if I failed to acknowledge that there are millions in this country that are food insecure, that too will suffer, I'm afraid to say, In the longer term, and perhaps even the medium term, I think things may be brighter for the African continent in particular. I say that because what we see unfolding as we speak is what would be called an own goal in London. Uh, That is to say, the United States and its allies are basically wielding weapons against themselves. What I mean by that is, that by using the dollar as a weapon, as the evidence of sanctions on Russia tends to suggest, they're encouraging nations that fear that holding dollars is basically like holding pieces of paper. And so you see a fast break away from the dollar as evidenced by the ruble rupee trade between India and Russia, particularly with regard to oil from Russia to India, and India is heavily dependent upon Russia for military supplies, which it feels that it needs with regard to confronting both Pakistan and India, although as a footnote, I should mention that in a Perhaps a game changer, the Chinese foreign minister uh, is in uh, Delhi as we speak, uh, the first high-level visit in four years. Uh, This could augur something highly profound and highly significant. But in any case, uh, in the meantime, 
uh, India can pay for that Russian military materiel uh, with uh, rubles. And I think you should also consider the fact that the Saudis are discussing trading their valuable oil commodity to China and being paid in the Chinese currency. This is a leading edge of what might be developing, whereby instead of the dollar as being this reserve currency or the currency that's used for even uh, non-North Atlantic countries to settle trade, you'll move to a different sort of system uh, that could lead to a heightened importance of commodities. Uh, I mentioned oil from Russia, for example. I could just as well mention oil from Angola or oil from Nigeria, natural gas from Nigeria, oil and natural gas from Algeria, uh, etc. If that particular system evolves and develops, then that puts a premium upon uh, various sorts of natural resources, which Africa holds in abundance. The key here, of course, is governance, because we know that historically, the USCIA has not been above a toppling regimes that they want to control. I mean, the, the examples are legion, uh, going back to the early 1950s and the toppling of the Mossadegh government in Iran, Iran being a major oil producer, even 1954, the toppling of the government in Guatemala, uh, even though a major commodity there was bananas. So this is evidence of the fact that on the one hand, Africa could be in the pole position with regard to this new world order that's developing since it has so many commodities. But on the other hand, uh, there's the governance question aforementioned. And then there are the sanctions against Russia, which is the major or a major commodity producer in Europe. Uh, for example, if you look at palladium, which is used for catalytic converters on automobiles and is essential to the new green economy, Russia produces palladium. But if the North Atlantic auto manufacturers don't want to use Russian palladium, they may have to turn to South Africa. And of course, that gives South Africa an advantage. Likewise, with regard to gold, which I dare say will be increasing in importance, not only because of the de-dollarization of the global economy, a term you'll be hearing more about sooner rather than later, but also because the alternative, which Bitcoin, for example, is not necessarily trusted widely for various reasons. And that brings us to gold, the old standby. And if you're going to boycott Russian gold, then once again, you have to go to South Africa for gold. So once again, it's a mixed bag with regard to where things stand concerning Africa and the global economy. And I should also say that uh, to reiterate what I hope your audience already knows, uh, the African nations have not endorsed sanctions against Moscow, even though you can make an argument 
that if they did, it would be to their benefit because it would tend to help to strangle the Russian economy to their benefit. But they're standing on principle, I guess, that they're making the determination that it does not make sense to have a world that allows and countenances U.S. uh, exceeding United Nations mandates with regard to Libya and engaging in regime change, which, of course, is a major reason that Uganda put forward for not endorsing sanctions because it's still miffed, as are many African nations, about what happened in Libya in 2011. And in that context, I should mention that just the other day in Belgrade, in the former Yugoslavia and now Serbia, uh, they were marking an an unfortunate anniversary, which is the NATO-U.S. bombing campaign lasting for 78 days, uh, which uh, was designed to disrupt uh, Yugoslavian unity. In some ways, it, it reminds me of what's happening in Eastern Europe as we speak, because it's apparent that Washington would like to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And therefore, it's constantly poured cold water on the idea that Kiev and Moscow could come to sort of an arrangement. Because it's apparent that Washington in particular is uh, enmeshed in a regime change program with regard to Moscow. Now, of course, it's uh, no mean feat to engage in regime change against a nuclear armed power, uh, but there you have it. I think, in part, many of these problems we're discussing, not least this Eastern European problem, uh, stems from Washington's overestimation of its strength. It's still living in the unipolar moment of the 1990s, and an underestimation of the multipolarity uh, that has arisen, the constant underestimation of Russia, the refusal to acknowledge the rise of China, and you usually end up with egg on your face minimally if you underestimate powerful antagonists. And that's precisely what Washington is doing as we speak. Uh, You see that in particular with regard to the latest scheme, uh, which is somehow uh, launching an international criminal court investigation uh, of Russia because of purported war crimes committed on the battlefield of Ukraine, which is curious because it was not so long ago that Washington had sanctions on international criminal court. So as the ICC was investigating United States depredations in Afghanistan, not to mention the fact that the United States is not a party to the treaty that created the ICC. And once again, that brings us back to Africa, because there's been a longstanding complaint on the continent that somehow the North Atlantic powers are using the International Criminal Court to penalize and polarize African leaders. Recall the sorry tale of Charles Taylor of Liberia who admittedly was no Boy Scout, but was promised that if he stepped down from power, that he could escape the International Criminal Court. He stepped down from power. He did not escape the International Criminal Court. 
And uh, that's the sort of double standard and hypocrisy uh, that has driven the African continent away from the North Atlantic bloc. And I dare say that one of the lasting consequences of this entire crisis in Eastern Europe might be a deep deepening of the rift, the pre-existing rift between Africa and what Donald Rumsfeld called the old continent, speaking of Europe, uh, not to mention its sidekick across the Atlantic in Washington. Let me ask you this. I'm glad you uh, talked about that. <clears throat> I see also this as a pushback against centuries of, a, of, of, of brutal colonialism. You know, I'm going to throw three names at you. Tina Marie, well, four actually, Hall and Oates, David Bowie, what do they have in common? When during my heyday, they, I loved those three artists or groups, and the term back then was blue-eyed soul. They were white people who were accepted into the black R&B community as though they were brothers and sisters, right? When I look at history and I see the colonial powers who brutally abused, oppressed and robbed the global south and, you know, whether we talk about, uh, you know, Hitler, the Crimean War, the early 1900s, the um, we could go on and on. Those same colonial powers repeatedly invaded Russia. And now it appears to me that countries such as India, India is another one. I don't think the U.S. saw this coming because they were part of the quad. These countries who have been brutalized by colonial power now look at Russia and they say, those are our blue-eyed soul brothers. If you look at the countries around the world that are saying, we're with Russia, not with the U.S., it just looks, it's like they're officially accepted as blue-eyed soul brothers. What do you think about that metaphor? Well, I think there's something to it. In fact, uh, I've alluded to that in the piece I wrote for Black Agenda Report uh, some days ago, where I pointed out that if you look at world history, you'll see this intriguing development. Uh, That is to say, as the Western European nations and their brethren in North America were getting rich of plundering the Americas and pillaging Africa, uh, Russia was moving east, oftentimes at the expense, admittedly, of China, establishing a lot of Vostok on the Pacific by 1860, its major city in that part of the world. But what that meant was that you had this anomaly whereby the Western European nations were considered world powers but were not necessarily the power on their continent. Since Russia is the most populous nation in Europe and, as noted, has most of the natural resources. So that led to Napoleon's invasion, Napoleon, of course, being the bad guy with regard to uh, Haiti, for example, uh, seeking to overthrow the Haitian Revolution. And you also see that with regard to uh, what happens in the 1890s when Russia strikes back, uh, to extend your blue-eyed soul brother metaphor, when it uh, comes to the defense of Ethiopia, when it's being invaded by Italy. And of course, uh, this means that Russia historically has been considered a kind of outlier uh, with regard to Europe. And you see a continuation of that outlier status uh, with the invasion of the then Soviet Union or the emerging Soviet Union uh, after World War One, about 100 years ago by the United States and its allies, and then by Adolf Hitler and Operation Barbarossa, June 22, 1941. And so 
as I said in that Black Agenda Report article, in some ways, you can analogize Russia to extend our cultural metaphors to being equivalent to the whale in Moby Dick, with the North Atlantic countries led by the United States being equivalent to Captain Ahab, which is being driven crazy, driven into a crazy self-destruction as it tries to lasso, lasso this uh, whale, speaking of Russia. And the only problem there, as far as I'm concerned, is that I'm on this ship of fools as it's headed to an iceberg. Yes. Now, let me ask you this. We got about three and a half minutes left. Um, the uh, uh, the, uh, the Central America, South America, the Caribbean, I see uh, Venezuela is now says they're going to start using Russia's Mir uh, card. They're going to have, you know, they can't use any of the, you know, uh, MasterCard, Visa, Discovery. They're doing that. Russia's using Union Pay. It appears to me that the, the, the South America, Central America had already started shifting towards China and they're going it's going to work out real well for them since they're sanctioned to have a economic system where they can kind of uh, operate freely. Uh, we got about three, uh, two, and, two and a half minutes. Your thoughts? Well, I'm glad you referenced uh, the Americas because there's some intriguing political developments that's unfolding. Uh, we know about the election of the left-leaning leader, President Castillo in Lima, Peru. We know about President Boric in Santiago de Chile. Uh, we know about the left-leaning regime in Bolivia, uh, succeeding Evo Morales. We know about the impending election in Colombia of Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla, interestingly enough. And so those political developments are totally consistent and co totally congruent with the new emerging international order, which involves a North Atlantic bloc on the one hand, uh, led by the United States, inclu including most of the European Union, and then a larger bloc uh, led by China, and depending upon how these talks in New Delhi between the Chinese foreign minister and his Indian counterpart go today, uh, perhaps including India. It's interestingly enough, in, in that uh, dialogue that's taking place between China and India, Russia is playing the mediator since it has positive relations with both. And in fact, part of the meetings in New Delhi today involve the Russian uh, envoy in Delhi uh, talking to Indian and Chinese counterparts, fundamentally, for lack of a better term, about sanctions busting. And so Latin America and Africa fit very neatly into this new block that's developing. Uh, it reminds me of the flock of geese that you see flying through the sky with, in a V-shaped formation, with perhaps China being in the lead uh, because it has the strongest economy, number two in the world, uh, but flanked by India, Russia, uh, Latin America, Africa, that is a promising prospect in the long term. But what we should ask is what that means for we who are stuck in the belly of the beast. 
I'm afraid to say that right now things do not look very promising. And they probably look even worse for the EU because the U.S., you know, the things that you need to survive, you can you can grow your own, you can create your own food, you can create your own energy. So things may be difficult, but the U.S. can theoretically make it for make make it through. The EU can do neither. They are in a world of deep and serious trouble of their own making. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn, a professor of history at the University of Houston. He's an author, historian, and researcher. He's got lots of great books. You can go anywhere that books are sell- sold and uh, check, go through his books. I guarantee you'll find not just one, but several that will be of great interest. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Former President Donald Trump is suing the Clinton campaign over the 2016 Russian collusion hoax. Also, NATO won't send troops to Ukraine, and conservative star Candace Owens catches the New York Times in a hypocritical move regarding Ukraine. Joining us to discuss these issues, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Let's start here. Very interesting. Donald Trump is suing. I, 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 for I don't know how long I've been saying to myself, why doesn't Trump file a lawsuit? Because he's got discovery, then depositions, and boy, they can get a whole lot out with that. And at minimum, force people to do, you know, to to try to not to be deposed and just make a big fight and and, and probably learn a lot. But at any rate, in light of the Durham investigation, what are your thoughts on uh, the Trump uh, campaign? The well, not even campaign. He's not running right now. Donald Trump suing the Clinton campaign. You know, I, I don't see uh, where he's going to go with this. Uh, is it a lawsuit for defamation? Uh, you know, this is very hard to do from a public figure uh, to, to to in the United States to win any kind of civil lawsuit for defamation, and especially in the context of a political campaign where, uh, you know, the point is kind of to defame your opponent and to spin phony stories about them, which he's accusing the uh, Clinton campaign of doing, which they did. Uh, you know, it's so I, I don't know legally how what he thinks he's going to get. I doubt he's going to go very far, frankly. You know, not because it's not. I think it's true that the Clinton campaign spun phony stories about him and uh, falsely accused him of being associated with uh, an agent of Vladimir Putin. But I just don't see how legally this is going to work out for him in the in, in the American. It's it's another kind of legal food fight that isn't going to go anywhere. When the, you show intentional fraud, if you show malice, if you show what they're and see, one of the things that they're arguing is they're arguing basically that it's a RICO or racketeering influence and corrupt organization act violations. It invokes that. Now, since it's a civil suit, they can't actually charge anybody with a criminal act. However, if you demonstrate that there 
was fraud, there was malice, and there was criminal activity going on here, intentional criminal activity. I think there may be a place where this rises above the normal, well, this is just a food fight with a, um, with, you know, with a political opponent. Once you get to fraud, mal- intent, malice, and criminal activity, I think there's a space for that. How about that? Yeah, I just don't think that the courts are going to go into that in, in the context of a political campaign. Again, this is this is attempt to uh, you know uh, judicialize, legalize, let uh, what's the word? Only prosecute your way out of politics in a certain way, and uh, turning every political litigating every political uh, uh, contradiction, every political fight. And in the United States, it's very hard. You get you can get away with a lot more about public figures than you can to get private citizens. If were if you were just a private citizen and someone had said he was an agent of Vladimir Putin or agent of the mafia or something, then that he'd have a better chance. But you know this is a public figure against a public figure, and I, I just I, I, again it's not criminal. He's not going to be able to demonstrate any criminal activity because there's none been demonstrated. He can't just say. It. I think this looks like a criminal activity. I mean, I, I just don't see where this goes uh, uh, legally, and you know, it's a distraction. I, again, it's uh, he's mad, and uh, he has a right to be mad in a certain sense, but this isn't going. I don't see. It. All right. So, well, let's move on to something more substantive. In that case, NATO has uh, said that they will. Secretary General uh, Jen Stoltenberg of NATO. He have many very strange and odd statements in the past, has now said that NATO is not part of the conflict. It provides support to Ukraine, but isn't part of the conflict. We could certainly argue that that's kind of uh, uh, those two statements don't go together. But he says NATO will not send the troops into Ukraine. He says it's extremely important to provide support to Ukraine, but at the same time, it is also extremely important to prevent this conflict from becoming a full-fledged war between NATO and Russia. This after, um, you know, this going on at the same time that President Biden is in um, in uh, um, uh, Europe, and uh, it seems to me that uh, there are certainly forces that would like to see this thing escalate. How far, I don't know, but it appears that there are forces that are saying we're not going to escalate it very far because, as I, and, and as I said, Jim, the neocon project's plan is, it, it, it is definitely not to escalate it. Their long-term plan is to bog Russia down in Ukraine, keep Russia there for eternally, weaken Russia, use that as excuse for more sanctions. So it's more a long-term plan. Certainly there are forces that would want to see it escalate. But at any rate, your thoughts on uh, Jen Stoltenberg's statement. Well, as you point out, there is a kind of contradiction here. NATO is not part of the conflict, but we're supporting Ukraine. And in fact, I think we all know or should know that NATO is part of this conflict. This is really, you know, uh, Ukraine is a cat's paw for NATO and and the U.S., uh, and, you know, Zelensky has no independence in that respect. He's being handled by the U.S. and NATO. And it's going to be it would be very hard for him if he wanted to to make a, 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 a resolution to this that the U.S. and NATO didn't want. And the whole point of this is to stop the infinite expansion of NATO with no consideration of Russia's security. OK, so so. In this, substantively, NATO is a part of the conflict, but it is very important, <laughs> and it, it, it's another step, and it's a step into the abyss if NATO will become directly involved militarily. And it's a good thing that Stolenberg is saying, we're not going to do that. And that's because he's hearing from people, from 
countries in NATO that they don't want to do that, especially from the Western European countries. I'm sure we do not want to have a war with Russia and get in directly involved in a military conflict with Russia. So that's an important point. And it's important to notice that. And there are people, and, and, and again, this is the point that Russia is, is working from a position of strength here that people have to recognize and that the Russians recognize. Now, you have this faction in the United States. I, don't, I think it is among some of the neocons and certainly among the American media, which is why don't we just go and start, start a war with Russia? You know, why don't we shoot down Russian planes? Why don't we do this? So, and, and this is very dangerous because it's all over the place now, and it's creating a lot of political pressure. It's coming from the Congress. It's coming from the media, and I think it is coming from a, 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 fact, a group of neocons, at least a portion of the neocon faction, which really thinks we can push Russia down. We can get away with escalation dominance against Russia in this context. And if we shoot Russian planes, that's too bad. They're not gonna, they, they wouldn't dare do anything else about it. And there are countries in NATO that aren't willing to do that and aren't willing to take that risk. So what you're seeing here is that contradiction between, okay, we, we, we want to support Ukraine because that's our project. We want to support Ukraine as the NATO, as the NATO cat's paw against Russia, but we can't do that too directly because we we do not want to get into a, a war with Russia. And, and it's this. We don't care about the Ukrainian lives. We've got to sacrifice some lives, and we don't want it to be European lives. And we don't, not in the military any, conflict anyway, we don't want it to be American lives. We could care less about the Ukrainian lives. They are there to catch bullets. So it's a, it's that, um, you know, there's, I don't want to use this word incorrectly, but in a way it's kind of a, a racism, for lack of a better term, against the Ukrainians saying, look, we want to create an environment where lots of Russians die. The more Ukrainians that die, the better. And we will use their deaths as leverage to say, there we go. Russia's bad and we can uh, leverage more sanctions and go after Russia based on the Ukrainians uh, being pulverized. But we really don't want to get our hands too dirty here. We don't want any get a, get any, any blood on our nice clean, clean suits and our white shirts. Uh, not U- Ukrainian or Russian blood. Let's sacrifice them. Yeah, look, it's 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 so cynical and nasty. And, you know, it, it, the Ukrainians are dispensable pawns in this game. They're sacrificial pawns. And and. This is what American foreign policy, establishment foreign policy experts have said for years. This is what Mearsheimer said. It's what the current head of the CIA said. If we pursue this policy, we're going to bring havoc onto Ukraine. We're going to wreak havoc on Ukraine. It's going to destroy Ukraine. They knew this. And there are people in Ukraine who know it. The right wing in Ukraine also knows it. The, 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 uh, there's an interview with one of the deputy advisors to senior advisors. We need to get into a large scale war with Russia in order to get into NATO. That's the way they, they, they think that's some of them think that's the way they're going to get NATO. They get themselves into NATO and get NATO, bring NATO into a conflict against Russia because they're more interested in attacking Russia than in bringing a kind of peaceful and reasonable life to, to Ukraine. There's nothing that anybody could object to. You know, if you ask anybody, most people, let's have Ukraine be a neutral country. That doesn't, that's not armed, it's not, a, it's not a base of operations against any other country. I mean, that's a good idea. That's the Russian idea. But you, you, you don't even see that here. And you're not allowed to see it. You know, this is a war about whether or not NATO can expand everywhere and be a, a military alliance against Russia on Russia's border. 
And that's what it has become already, it's at least partially become. And this is why it's going to be a fight to roll it back. So, uh, but the Ukrainians are the pawns in this game, the Ukrainian people in general. You know, there are factions of right-wing Ukrainians who want to do anything to get against Russia. They're willing to sacrifice certainly the eastern portion of Ukraine, uh, the people of that portion. But, you know, they think that's an important, and, and certainly the Americans and NATO think that's their, their whole strategy is to build up war against and to destroy Russia essentially as a strong nation. Because Russia has shown its hand over the past 10 years since it intervened in Syria it will intervene in ways that can put at least an impediment to American and, and Western imperialism. And, and the thing about it is I think the forces in Ukraine were convinced by NATO and the U.S. that if they did somehow get dragged into war, if they could, that if they could, they felt if we can spark a war with Russia, sure, we can't beat them, but if we get it going, NATO will come in and then we'll finally get our glorious victory over Russia because NATO is going to come in and we're going to beat them. And they pumped these suckers up to believe that. And when it started, they turned around and left them to be pulverized. And that's where they are now. Um, and it's obvious the way this thing's going to turn out. I do think that um, the... Probably the loudest voices in Washington that are opposing this, from what I start to see come out, is the Pentagon. Because let's face it, the Pentagon knows, A, we're the ones that have to fight the war. B, Russia has escalatory dominance, to use uh, Barack Obama's word, on the Russian border. You don't want to fight the second most powerful military on earth on its border, you ain't winning that winning conventionally. You can't go nuclear because if you do, we all lose. And that's an option that they see that could happen. And certainly, I think Russia showing the use of um, their um, uh, 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 hypersonic missiles was throwing an elbow and reminding, look, we're involved in this. We don't want trouble. But if there is trouble, we do have some weapons that you don't have an answer for. And I think that was part of Russia saying, look, you don't if you stay out of a fight with us, we'll stay out of a fight with you. What do you think about that evaluation? I think that's right. That is uh, uh, Russia has shown. And I think the Pentagon knows <laughs> that the balance of forces in that in that theater is such that you don't want to get into a conflict with it. It, 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 it would be a disaster. OK, there's very little chance that you'd win a conventional conflict. And it's a very likely chance it would become immediate, very quickly a nuclear car. And it would because, you know, uh, uh, NATO has a lot of arms. They have a lot of air power, and they have a lot more uh, uh, planes than the Russians do. And it may very well be the case that the Russians would have to and would use tactical nuclear weapons uh, because they would. <laughs> and uh, so uh, this is a very dangerous situation. And the Pentagon knows it. And we've seen this before in the United States. You know that the, that both they they. Egg, egg, as you say, egg the Ukrainians on, the egg people on. And certainly, I think Zelensky believes that and is, doesn't know what to do now, but he realizes it's not true that the Americans are going to come in. And I think it's true that we've seen previously that it's the generals who have been said, you know, in certain situations said, be more careful about this. You know, when, when Donald Trump called off the strike on Iran, which he had ordered, and called it off with 10 minutes to go, that's the official narrative on this. You know, it was the, it was the most anti-militaristic move of a president since John F. Kennedy did not put the 
uh, bring air support to the Bay of Pigs. And he did that. If you read carefully the, the, the articles on that, it was the generals who were saying, you got to be more careful about this. You know, the neocons had him going. So, man, I'm ready to go. Uh, so now I, 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 I hope that because, that, you know, this is going to be a conflict that's going to get out of control very quickly. That's what they said then. And I think that's what they're saying now. So I hope that the, that the Pentagon is doing this. And there's some indication of that in those stories that came out of the Pentagon, correcting the record about certain things. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's that's what's giving Biden. And I give Biden credit for saying, no, 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 we're not going to do this. <laughs> You know, we're not going to go give a no for no fly zone, and we're not going to cross certain lines. And we don't want to war with Russia, despite the fact that the media is trying to browbeat him into into doing it. Uh, so, you know, I hope that's coming from the from the Pentagon. Who, you know, that's their job to know the actual disposition and balance of forces. And you know, it's not the media's job. The media's job is to look good on TV and sound sound really cool and 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 strong and that's what these reporters are doing and that's what the congressmen are doing too a lot of large congressmen and women an interesting story i didn't know now apparently candace owens is now a russian bot um apparently um the new york times contacted her she got an email from them and they said that she was advancing ideas that ukraine is a corrupt country similar to ones on russian state tv and they, where'd you get that? Apparently, they were going to do a story on that, and they were certainly accusing Russian bot Kansas Owen, Candace Owens. And she remind, she says, I replied, informing them that I actually got my ideas from the New York Times, provided them links to their past articles. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we're all Russian bots or conspiracy theorists or whatever. You know, that's these are triggers. She caught them out on this. These are trigger words that are, you know. Uh, triggers to, to, to your in-group that you know you, you cannot pay attention to this person. You cannot listen to what they say because they're Russian bot or they're conspiracy theorists or they're, a, you know, a, a thought apologist or whatever. You know, these, these, are, these are words of meaning except as signals. Uh, uh, they're hollow. And she demonstrated how hollow they were. I didn't get this from Russia. I got this from you. <laughs> New York Times. I mean, you know, I wrote two long articles about Ukraine in 2014 when the Biden business was happening. And I had a lot of research on it. I was amazed to find how badly corrupt Ukraine was considered in the world. You know, I think there's an institute called Transnational Institute or something that, that uh, you know, ranks countries in their corrupt. And, and Ukraine was near the top of the most corrupt countries in the world. And it hasn't stopped. You know, uh, this is what we created in post-Soviet uh, sphere. Uh, uh, and in and Ukraine became a, uh, uh, a country ruled by corrupt oligarchs, people who had stolen public wealth and amassed it for themselves and put it offshore. And so this is what Ukraine is, and nobody's changed that. And, you know, the, you, the New York Times and other mainstream sources reported on Zelensky in the, in the, in the famous uh, Panama Papers uh, about, you know, his, he was, he's been bought off by Ukrainian oligarchs. We know that's public knowledge. So, you know, this is not, this is public knowledge that was reported many times in the Western press and New York Times. And to say it now, does, you know, to, 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 for them to have to say, if you repeat that information, now you're a Russian bot, or now you're a Putin apologist, it's just silly. And, but, you know, unfortunately, this kind of thing gets over you. It happens in everything. You know, if you, if you repeat, if, you, if you're outside the current narrative, even if you're saying things, that were said by Americans 
for 20 years, but now they would go against the current narrative. Some of the, the, the inventions of Vladimir Putin. It shows the uh, preposterous nature and the absurd uh, state of affairs of, 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 the, of the, the, the Western media, and in particular, the New York Times. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. NATO has announced that it will not send troops to Ukraine in a move to avoid war with Russia. Also, Russia has announced that they are selling gas to the EU in rubles. President Biden announces that there will be food shortages and apparent Pentagon leaks seem to debunk neocon myths. For more on these exciting stories, we turn to our guest, Dr. David Walalu. He's author of The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order. Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Good to be with you, Garland. And, uh, and what's the name of your, your great YouTube show again? Uh, it's Geopolitics in Conflict. Geopolitics in Conflict. Find that on YouTube. It's a great show, and uh, you should su- subscribe and make sure you click the little bell so you will get notifications. And next, Dan Kavalik. He's a writer, and he's author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Well, gentlemen, I can't think of a better panel given the things that are going on right now. So let's start with a big one. President Biden went to um, went to has been in uh, in Europe. Personally, I suspect that he's sees some cracks in the coalition and that's a big part of it. But here's what we've got. Uh, The North Atlantic Treaty Organization won't send troops to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltzberg told a news conference in Brussels commenting on a proposal by Poland for the alliance to send peacekeeping troops troops there. It is extremely important to provide support to Ukraine, he continued. But at the same time, it is also extremely important to prevent this conflict from becoming a full-fledged war between NATO and Russia. Let's start with you. Your reactions, Dan Kavalik. Yes, well, I, that's welcome news uh, to me. I think NATO should stay out of this. NATO's done enough to provoke this war. And, uh, you know, it's my uh, what I'm reading is that Joe Biden and the Defense Department uh, are actually the grown ups in the room who really don't want this crisis to get out of hand and don't want to keep feeding the fuel of the conflict. But there are forces in the White House and in Washington that are definitely trying to push uh, against them and trying to push for a larger war. So I'm glad that for the moment, cooler heads are prevailing. Dr. Walalu, your thoughts? Well, actually, uh, NATO is realizing, of course, they are the source of this problem. We won't be in this conflict in the first place had NATO stopped expanding eastward towards Russia. I mean, that's a common sense. Common sense. And it's a reality that the West is not willing to accept. And what, what sort of... Uh, uh, perplexing to the average listeners here in the West or here in the United States is that they don't understand the, the root causes of the issue to begin with. And because confronting Russia, a nuclear power is no small matter. And NATO now realizes that, oh my gosh, this is the first time that we are faced with the reality of dealing with Russia. Because here is the thing. 
Russia will activate its nuclear doctrine, which suggests two things. If it is losing a conventional war or if it feels threatened, Russia will be using a tactical nuclear weapon. So, Dan, the, uh, the other thing is there's certainly pushback by, it, it appears from some of the articles we're seeing, that the Pentagon, for any number of reasons I, I would look in, one of them would be on Russia's border, probably the second most powerful um, army in the world, but on its border, on its home base, probably the most powerful. So the likelihood in talking to Scott Ritter, in talking to some of the other political analysts, they say it has over, it has escalatory dominance on its on its border. So if the U.S. slash NATO were to get involved on Russia's border, they would likely lose they would likely lose a conventional war and that the Pentagon basically is saying we don't want that. Let me add one other thing. As the neocon project, that wasn't even the intent. The intent was to drag Russia into this to sacrifice the lives and bodies of Ukrainians for as long as they possibly could and leave Russia to rot away in this frozen long-term conflict. Your thoughts? Yeah, and that, that still, I think, is the game plan, of course. And that's why the U.S. is not participating in peace discussions because it doesn't want peace. But yes, it also doesn't want to lose a war uh, to Russia. Uh, though, again, I do think there are people in the administration who think they could win a war against Russia. Um, but I think the prevailing view for the moment is that that would make no sense. And so for now, they're going to send more arms to Ukraine, again, in the hopes that they can continue this war going for as long as possible and sap the Russians' um, energy uh, for as long as they can, in the same way that they did in Afghanistan, of course, in the 1980s. Let me ask you this, Dr. Walalu. It seems to me they're they're looking at this conflict through the lens of how the U.S. and NATO um, conduct a conflict. They go in and they flatten a country and then they try to rebuild it, but there's not much to rebuild. If you look at the way that Russia is conducting this conflict, it's very different in that they are, you know, we see people um, in 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 um, the war zone who still have water, who still have heat, who still have internet. They're not devastating the civilian infrastructure, which would suggest that this is going to turn out differently than Libya or Iraq or some of the countries where the U.S. has simply went in and NATO went in and flattened it. Your thoughts on the how Russia's conducting it and what that suggests for the outcome, Dr. Walalu? Well, in Indeed, Galen. So the basic uh, notion will be, should we call it an invasion or should we call it a military operation? So from where I'm sitting, it looks to me like a military operation because there is a big difference between the two. Because here's the thing. Russia is not after unseating the Ukrainian government. Russia is not after removing uh, Zelensky, who is very, very corrupted to begin with. Russia is after its own security. And now with those military operations, it looks to me that Russia wants to ensure that its security concerns are sort of put on the table by ensuring that it's going to have to push against whomever in near, uh, on the eastern border of, uh, of, of Ukraine. And, and that's how they are approaching it. I mean, yes, they, couldn't fla- they could flatten the whole country if they want to, which usually won't be the right thing to do to begin with, because it will escalate the tensions even further. And this is why which most Americans do not know. There is a hidden war inside Washington 
between the Pentagon and State Department. And usually it's not going to be disclosed for this reason only, because if the troops, U.S. troops or NATO troops are on U.S. on uh, Ukrainian soil, that will be a declaration of war against Russia and Russia will retaliate in that. This is the reason why they are backing up. And Russia, at the same time, they are ensuring that they don't want to, they are not targeting civilians. And all the videos coming out of Ukraine, it's nothing but a lie. Because I checked on some, some of the stuff are nothing but a video game that been recorded in 2021. Next, and this is a very important, because, uh, you know, I have argued for a while the that NATO and the U.S., well, excuse me, the U.S. empire extended. I don't even have to say NATO. They don't want a conventional war with Russia. What they wanted was to set this thing up, and then they could go use their economic war. They felt like, we don't want to go conventional war, but we're going to do economic World War Three, and that's the sanction. And, it, and, and when I look at the sanctions being instituted and the Biden administration and me immediately running out to Venezuela and Iran looking for help, it seems like, A, they didn't think this thing through. But now I'm thinking that Russia did. One of the things that or at least had some plans, Russia recently did two things. They released a list of unfriendly nations. And now what they've said is unfriendly nations will have to buy their gas in rubles. Um, let's start with you, Dan Kavalik. What do you think that I'm hearing people say that that's kind of a checkmate move? Um, we'll see whether they completely um, enforce it. But your thoughts on the payment in rubles for gas supplies to unfriendly states, Dan? No, it's giant. I mean, uh, because how are these countries going to get rubles? They're going to have to pay with gold, for example, perhaps. It's not going to be an easy thing to do, and it's going to uh, prop up the Russian economy to the detriment of uh, the EU economies, and those are the countries we're really talking about, maybe Japan as well. Um, and so this was a bold move and a smart move on on Putin's part. I do think you are correct that the U.S. really didn't think this through, but uh, Russia did. You know, remember uh, the Russian foreign ministry. Before the invasion was meeting with countries like Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, China, it was it was preparing for this eventuality. And what they've, of course, come up with very quickly is that they're going to start trading uh, oil uh, using the Chinese yuan. Um, and now even Saudi Arabia is talking about maybe using that. So what's going to happen is the dollar – the U.S. dollar will no longer be the reserve currency of the world, which will make the U.S. dollar uh, more worthless than it already is. Of course, it is becoming more worthless because of inflation, but inflation is just going to rise because of all of this. And um, I think the U.S. overplayed its hand uh, here, thinking maybe they could yeah, cripple the Russian economy quickly. And therefore, they wouldn't really have to bear the brunt of all this, um, but they were wrong. And again, I think the Russians were prepared for this in a way the U.S. was not. Now the U.S. is stuck and I think doesn't really know how to handle this. Russia, payment in rubles for gas supplies to unfriendly states. Dr. Walalu, your thoughts on that? Well, I, I couldn't agree more with Dan, uh, uh, with Dan's assertion regarding now the uh, it, it was a smart move from Russia. Europeans now is going to have to be forced 
to either, as Dan mentioned, either to buy on gold or they have to buy the ruble. So which means either or they are screwed, basically, if I may permit it to use the term, the Europeans. And basically what it is, because what is going to be the next move for Europeans is they're going to have to buy gas from, let's say, the United States. Well, guess how much the United States is going to charge them? Ten times the amount of what they're paying for the Russians. And it just doesn't make any sense. And this is why there are those cracks inside Europe that usually we won't hear about. And I have my own sources to, to confirm this. There are cracks inside. That's the reason why uh, the President Biden ended up going all, uh, all the way to Europe. Second thing is that with the announcements by the with the consideration of Saudi Arabia using the yuan, the Chinese currency, that tells me personally where the shift is already underway. Because you add the 32 uh, countries from the global south that the abstain from the uh, voting the UN for the sanctions against Russia, with the China moving forward with its BRI, and you can see where this is headed. And this is one thing. The United States did not think through because the decision to jump on the sanctions was based on emotions rather than strategic thinking. You know, Dan, as a, a person who has tra- who has traveled to a number of countries that have suffered at the hands of U.S. and European colonialism, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. When I look at the block of country, the blocks of countries that did not support the U.S. In, with its sanctions, I see Africa. I, you know, I see um, India. I see China. I see uh, South America. All regions who have suffered many genocides and significant oppression and slavery and all kinds of terrible things at the hands of the U.S. and um, uh, EU colonialist powers. It almost seems like a time in history where all of these countries came together and said, you know what, we've had enough. Maybe this is our chance to come back and once and for all stop this colo- these colonialist monsters from uh, you know, taking us to the cleaners and abusing us. Your thoughts, Dan Cavalli? Well, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think there is a certain glee amongst those countries. Because let's face it, especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the U.S. in particular, but also NATO, they've had their way in the world. They have attacked countries at will, mostly without Security Council authorization. They have leveled entire nations like Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan, Somalia, now Yemen, Um, And the world basically couldn't do anything about it except sit back and watch. And now, for the first time, uh, you have a country like Russia fighting back against this, right? And I think that this is a historic event. I think the world does see this as the East and the global South finally fighting back. And I don't think that can be underestimated. And that certainly is the view. I just got back from Nicaragua, and I, I can tell you that's a view of people in Nicaragua, even amongst peasants, you know, who I met with, uh, who are more up on what's happening in Ukraine than most Americans. Um, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I'd like to ask you that, also, Doctor Walalu, and if you could add a comment on the. 
level of hyperbole in the U.S. media. And to my end, I look at it as a certain level of desperation that we've got to hide the truth because if people find out things about the Azov Battalion and the history of how this came about, that even our own American citizens will look at us and question whether this is the best move. So your thoughts on uh, those two things, Dr. Walalu? Well, that's that's why, Garland, do Americans truly understand what this conflict is all about? Did the media truly explain which is its role to to have ethical standards by which to disclose the truth to the American people so they know what the government is doing? And and no, of course they are not saying this one. But here is the thing. What the United States government is not realizing, uh, by now it does, but what it didn't realize when it embarked on these decisions to sanction Russia is how that's going to impact the front the home front right here, because now you got farmers worrying about the fertilizer because you got Russia and you got Belarus, the top producer of fertilizer. How are they going to feed? This is why we're going to be running to the issue of the food shortages. But here is one thing that I want your listeners to know, and this is uh, that's going to be the tipping point. Ukraine is going to become the tipping point for the new global order. This is where the shift. But it's not going to be led by the United States, as the president said, because I, I just was uh, I was floored when I heard his statement, because it's not accurate. That new order is going to be centered in the East, and it's not going to be based on what the United States says. It's going to be based on transactions. That's where things are headed. Let me ask you this, Dan, and and that's interesting what it's going to be based on. The London and the U.S. have moved to a really a um, a monetary, you know, monetary uh, economies and everything was based on, you know, derivatives and the value of this and the market, et cetera. But when I look at Russia and China and, and, and these other countries, when I look at the African countries and I look at the South American countries, they have commodities. Maybe it's lithium. Maybe it's. Um, you know, various types of uh, metals. When I look at Russia, commodities. When I look at China, industrial base, they make widgets, <laughs> the infamous widgets, right? So to me, in the long run, the entire Western um, um, economic model based on dollars and values that go up and down and, and magic it doesn't stand up against people who have hard things that they can make and sell in the real world. Your thoughts on the, the, the two blocks as I see them? No, I think that's right, and I think that's why the sanctions uh, have backfired in a way that the U.S. didn't predict Because for the very reason you say, because you have these economies like the U.S. and the U.K. and others in Europe that are imaginary economies, right? It's all based – on investment in money and uh, cyber currencies that have no intrinsic value, that are backed by nothing. And as you say, you have China that makes things, Vietnam that makes things, Iran that makes pretty much everything they need. And the U.S. has largely stopped making things. And uh, we're seeing the results of this. You know, you mentioned the U.K. It just was Uh, put out that the UK is expecting to have the largest decline in standard of living since the 1950s, since they started recording 
those numbers, right? And that was right after World War II, right? They were still recovering and all that. Uh, this is incredible, and the U.S. is going to experience the same thing. It is as we as we speak, right? Uh, these economies are not working for people, and they are not uh, uh, sanction-proof in the way that I do think the Russian and Chinese economies are to some extent. And we're going to see that our economy is basically a house of cards that's ready to collapse. And I don't say that with glee. I live there. But it's a reality. Dr. Walalu, let me ask you about something also that we, you know, we, I've been talking a lot about, you know, South America and Africa, blah, blah, blah. Let me ask you about the Middle East. Very interesting because we're seeing Syria, a country that the U.S. tried to overthrow, and Russia, you know, came in and basically stopped us. That infuriated the neocons. But we're seeing the Middle East start to come together, start to coalesce. Now the um, the Gulf states are now who worked with the U.S., literally worked with the U.S. to try to overthrow Syria. They're now accepting Bashar al-Assad and becoming friends. And from what I hear, they want him to try to work work out something to maybe deal with, you know, deal with this Yemen thing that the Gulf states are looking to China. That the, the from what I talk to people, the Muslim population is looking at Europe saying, wait a minute, you bombed our country's flat and you didn't even want refugees when you destabilized our country. And now you're upset because you're saying literally these are white, um, blonde haired, blue eyed people. Our hearts go out to them, but you can slaughter as many Muslims as you, as you want. And we actually do it and don't bother. It appears to me the Middle East is a very powerful part of the world, and they have decidedly turned to the East. What's that all about, Dr. Walalu? Well, that's about seeing the uh, sort of the hypocrisy of the West, and, and the United States played its role into all this. I argued back then, before the invasion of Iraq, that back then I was still in Washington, D.C., and I was kind of like, you guys do not want to go in, because you don't understand the history of uh, Iraq, you don't understand the, the depth of the history of the Middle East. This is not, a, and I was told that, oh, no, it will be an easy walk. We just go in, liberate. I said, if you go in, you stay in there for the next 15, 20 years, and the Middle East will never be the same. The approach that China is approaching it is based on a neutrality. China doesn't favor one country over another. China deals with business with both of them. And this is personally my opinion why, as I disclosed in my Saudi book, that it will be just a matter of time before Saudi Arabia will strengthen its business relations with China as a, as a message to the United States that, hey, U.S., we are ditching you for China. And that's exactly what is going to be happening. As a matter of fact, Wang Yi, the foreign council for, for China, just met with the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia in Pakistan in the, uh, during the meeting of the OIC, the Organization of the Islamic Council. So they met in Pakistan. And this, they issued one statement, and the statement has a significant uh, resonance to it because they used one word, and that word is Saudi Arabia and China are good friends. That tells me where things are headed. So the Middle East is seeing where things are going. Iran is strengthening its ties with both Russia and China. Turkey is moving forward. So Saudis want to say, we're not going to be, want to be left behind. We're going to get on on this train before it's too late. You know, Dan, I have to ask you because you've been I know you were in Syria recently. You saw the devastation of the uh, the U.S.'s dirty war on Syria. You saw them trying to rebuild. And even now with the Caesar sanctions or whatever they are, the, the, the viciousness of them trying to stop from rebuild. You've been to Syria. Your thoughts on where um, how the Middle East uh, uh, fits into this? 
Yeah, well, I agree that I think what's happening is, again, a great realignment. I think that's what we're seeing. I think the Gulf states, which frankly, they could never have felt comfortable about aligning with the U.S. and in in Israel, uh, which meant abandoning the Palestinians, which they've done. Uh, I'm sure that did not sit well with them. And, but they tend to be opportunistic, the Gulf states, and so they aligned with the people they thought were going to win, and now they've decided it ain't going to be the U.S. and Israel, that it is going to be Russia and China. And I think they feel more comfortable uh, aligning with them because it doesn't mean aligning with Israel against the Palestinian people. And uh, so we're going to see interesting things. You mentioned maybe they're going to settle the thing with Yemen, which is the greatest human catastrophe in the world today. Maybe now they'll start supporting the Palestinian people. Things could change dramatically, not just for the Middle East, but for all the global south. And again, I think the global south, that's why they're quietly supporting Russia in all this. On Thursday, President Biden warned that the U.S.-led Western sanctions campaign against Russia will lead to real food shortages. Shortages With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages, and it's going to be real, Biden said at a press conference in Brussels. The price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. Here's the important part of the sentence. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. Dr. Walalu, Joe Biden just admitted that he's sanctioning Europe and his own countries, that the price will be food shortages. Again, we look at it and the question will come to Joe Biden and the leaders in Europe at some point. Was this worth it? I suspect there will be regime change and it ain't going to be in Russia that the people we're going to see over this summer. I believe there will be an explosion of protest based on what we know about the propensity protest in Europe already. They'll protest at the drop of a hat. And these people are not going to be happy when they're running short of food and the gas prices through the roof and all of this. And they're going to say, well, right now they're all behind it and all that stuff. But at some point. Reality is going to set in at the grocery store. Your thoughts about the blowback from the sanctions, David Walalu? Well, you're absolutely correct, Garland. And when uh, we all know how it is, and given how everybody's armed in this country, we all know where it's going to be leading to. And this is, again, the short-sightedness of the administration that whomever was advising the president didn't, didn't look beyond the end of their nose. They, had, they didn't think for the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the global order is changing, you know, because that global order that we see today that's been managed by the United States, it's showing cracks. The, the, those cracks are increasing, expanding, and becoming more visible. And this is why uh, it, it, they didn't realize that those sanctions are going to backfire, and they are backfiring as we're seeing the prices going up, inflation is going up, and we are still giving money to Ukraine, which we know is going to be just uh, among corrupted people there. It's shame on the administration that sacrificing American families for some cause that we created. Dan, it's, and it, it also seems to me, look, the power of the only power of the U.S. empire is that is an empire, and an empire is a form of a coalition, right? Mm-hmm. When this coalition 
starts to crack and fall apart, it's game over. NATO's done. The U.S. The empire's done. The, they may have started a fire that burns down their own house. Dan Kovalik, your thoughts on the, um, how this affects the – does the coalition with Europe fall apart? How does this thing work? In the, you know, and maybe quicker than we think. I mean uh, what I think Europeans are realizing is that not only was UK, Ukraine sacrificed – uh, in order to, you know, have at the Russians, but all of Europe is, has been as well, right? That this is as much, these sanctions are as much of an attack on Europe as they are in Russia, right? If the U.S. were able to successfully prevent Europe from getting Russian natural gas, the EU economy would be devastated, and again, unless the Europeans are suicidal, they have to realize this and they must realize that the U.S. has set them up. And uh, once that really sinks in, I think you will see a real rift between the United States and the EU. I agree. At some point, people are going to start asking this question, was all this worth it? And when that question starts being asked on a broad basis, uh, it's game, set, and match. Uh, Dr. Walalu, uh, tell people a little bit, of, uh, where can they find your uh, YouTube show? What's the name of it again? Yeah, geopoliticsinconflict.com. All right, that's Dr. David Walalu. He's author of The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking the Global Order, and Dan Kovalik, author of The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, How the CIA and Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There is some evidence that Pentagon insiders are pushing back against the U.S. State Department neocon war hawks. Also, what did President Biden mean when he stated that there's going to be a new world order and that the U.S. must lead it? And we discussed the U.S. role in subverting Ukrainian democracy. For, for more on these exciting stories, we have Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, interesting story in in consortium news. Pentagon drops truth bombs to stave off war with Russia. Leaked stories from the Pentagon have exposed how mainstream media reports Russia's conduct in the Ukraine war in a bid to counter propaganda intended to get NATO into the conflict. Um, I got a lot to say on that, but I'm going to start with your thoughts. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? It's very hard to read. I mean, I think I think the um, I think that the war is going to last a long time. And I think that the Biden administration uh, truly does not want to get dragged into the conflict because it knows that if it does, um, there's no telling where things would wind up. I mean, it would be a really, uh, a, 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 at, at the very best, a 1914 moment where Europe is, Europe and America are dragged into a conventional war at the very worst, it would be a 1962 moment on steroids where the U.S. and, and Europe and Russia are directed to a nuclear exchange. And that's something the Biden administration is sufficiently sane enough to wish to avoid. 
So there's information, there's, there are indications one can surmise that the Pentagon is sort of trying to put out feelers to cool things off. And one is putting out, you know, notifications or putting out or, or making or leaking information to the effect that there is no evidence that Russia is intending to launch a, um, uh, a chemical or a biological attack. Um, and that's very important because Biden had seemingly been setting the scene for a Syria-type provocation where the, the U.S. would accuse uh, Putin of attempting to do just that and, um, and then use that for, as a pretext to, to escalate the war. So it looks like maybe, just maybe, um, the U.S. is not in the mood for provocations of that sort and will not be going down that road which I guess is a relatively good sign. Yeah, there's another part of this, too, that it generally isn't discussed, because what we're saying is, you know, there's a pretty common conversation going on about what we're saying, and it, and it kind of goes just like this one we're having, right? But let me take a little bit of a left turn on it. There's, this is the other side. The reality in talking to so many um, analysts, international analysts, and people who really know the military is this, that on the Russian border, where the Russians have all of their missiles and bases, everything of theirs, they've got things hidden deep in Russia, in the mountains that they can strike you from, missile bases, all kinds of things, that if you go to war with the second most powerful military on earth on its border, that you will most likely face a comprehensive loss in conventional warfare. So the second part would be this. Now, particularly with these hypersonic missiles, you take off from a aircraft carrier, and if they fire one missile, that aircraft carrier is done because you don't have any way to defend against hypersonic missiles. So the other side of it is for those saying, well, let's go ahead. It's like me standing there and people saying, go on, Garland, punch Mike Tyson. And I look at him and say, I know how this ends. So the other part of it is there has to be a perspective that says, A, you know, they could go to it could go to military. I mean, it could go get out of hand, blah, blah. There's got to be there. But just picking a fight with a guy that's probably going to punch your lights out in the initial battle is probably an, a, 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 at least a concern, shall we say, of the military, Dan. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the whole problem that, that Biden faces is how to is one of modulation. I mean, you know, he's got, he's already he's already backed Russia into a corner with the result that he now has this immense war on his hand hands. I mean, you know, the war which is consuming a. Uh, the Ukraine on the edge of Europe, uh, you know, everything is blowing up. So his, his, he wants to, to, you know, to adjust the burner <laughs> so the, the pot boils so it doesn't boil over, okay? Um, and, and that's, you know, that's his aim so far. Um, but it's extremely difficult, if not really impossible, because, you know, it's not like a stove where you have a, you know, your little knob that does what you want it to do. I mean, it's, in, in warfare, there is always, you know, there's always the unpredictable element. I mean, what is a, what's a, what a Mike Tyson said? You know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. 
and then and then and then uh, and then all plans go to hell. I mean, so they're playing a very dangerous game uh, here, and I think that um, they they're trying to keep playing it. They're trying to keep things under control. But whether they'll be able to, uh, I am increasingly doubtful. Here's the other part, I think, and that is Joe Biden is has gone to um, Europe. I believe the reason he's there is because there are cracks in his coalition. I believe that Joe Biden's biggest problem here is in one way in through in one in a political perspective is not going to be Russia. It's going to be the EU in that. If you look at these two adversaries, if we use that term, on one side, you've got Russia who feels backed into a corner and wherein the population now internal polls are above 70 percent support for the Russian government, for Vladimir Putin, for the decisions that they've made. As a nation, they feel backed into a corner. There's an existential threat and they got to fight their way out of that corner. That's the way they see it. On the other side, you've got Europe where the people of Europe ain't going to be so crazy about paying unthinkable prices, about not being able to find bread, wine, and cheese on their shelves and having their industry collapse out from under them on behalf of the neocon project. And uh, Joe Biden, as this goes on month by month, Joe Biden's problem is going to be the European people are going to be calling for regime change and it ain't going to be in Russia. Your thoughts, Dan? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I mean, look at it from Germany's perspective. I mean, Germany, <laughs> it's really, it's really amazing. I mean, Germany, they had built this Nord Stream 2 project and, and, you know, and, and it was going to satisfy their energy needs, you know, which would allow them also to attack, attack the problem of global, of a, of global warming and then ratcheting down fossil fuels over the long term in a in a in an orderly you know systematic process. So now Nord Stream Two has gone to hell essentially, and they are facing a huge energy crunch. Um, meanwhile, the United States is is suffering much less. I mean, the U.S. is that energy is self sufficient in terms of energy, and actually, it may actually turn a small profit. And meanwhile, Germany is being forced to purchase liquefied natural gas uh, at a price somewhere around around five times for what are, of what it would have pay, paid for gas from Nord Stream 2. Now, number one, if I was an ordinary, if I was a German worker, I would be extremely upset. Uh, and number two, I would want to know how did we get in this fix? I mean, things were going along relatively well, and now I'm out of a job. My factory is closed. My, all my friends are out of a job. My kids' economic prospects are, are shrinking dramatically. So how did this happen? And, and how did it happen that suddenly the U.S. is, you know, is in such a comparatively advantageous position? So... I would think that should be the question on everyone's mind. And once that and that question is not being asked now because you know the, the, the war is going hot and heavy, the press is drumming up war fever, um, and uh, you know, and, and everybody's you know too busy, you know, in their Orwellian, you know, two minute hate against uh, Vladimir Putin. But once that fades and it will fade, once that fades, people will start asking difficult questions like that. And when that happens, 
the answers are going to be increasingly uncomfortable from a U.S. point of view. Because the question is this, and this to me, this is the big question. Okay, this is what you have to suffer, and this is what you're suffering. Here's the question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? What did we need to do? What did we have to gain? What did they ask for? Well, they asked us to get the heck off of their border. They, and, but mainly what they said was, just say this country won't join NATO, take the bases out of it, take the missiles out of it, get out of Ukraine, leave Ukraine alone, leave us alone, leave NATO neutral. We don't want you to do anything. We want you to not do anything. And that is not continue to pump m- missiles into Ukraine. And if you ask the average farmer, the average factory worker, some guy building uh, leather seats at a Mercedes plant, he's going to say, I ain't building leather, leather seats at a Mercedes plant anymore because my plant is closed. And it comes down to, was it worth it? And I think at some point, there's going to be a whole lot to pay um, in the long run on this. There's going to be, you know, there now it's all Russia. But let me ask you this. Let me throw this in here. The story out about Russia now saying to Germany and to uh, the, uh, quote, unfriendly nations, you got to pay for gas if you want it in rubles starting next week. How does that um, fit into this puzzle, Dan? Oh, I think it. I think it fits into it very, very neatly. Because I think that means the effective price of uh, gas will go up, and it means that uh, that that Russia's economic prospects are looking distinctly better than they were a couple of weeks ago. So, so, so the the, the countries the, the countries that are losing all around that are getting socked are those in between, in between these two powers. And, and, and they've got to ask themselves, I mean, I mean, all Russia wanted were reasonable um, security guarantees, which is what every country wants. So, you know, so, so, so why couldn't they oblige? And, and, you know, and, 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 let's, and let's backtrack a second. Let's be, let's be realistic here. There's a reason they couldn't oblige. And the reason is that the Ukraine is a country that wasn't working. It was this very dangerous border zone in between the EU and Russia. And it was falling apart. It was torn by by internal disputes, which were really irresolvable. Um, And 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 the U.S. had had exacerbated that dispute by those disputes, by by encouraging nationalist elements who were tearing the country apart, polarizing um, opinion, and making the the Russian-speaking East feel increasingly, you know, afraid. So <laughs> it, it really is NATO and the U.S., which has really exacerbated this problem, but the real problem is just simply a, an, a non-viable uh, Ukraine in the middle of this whole, this whole thing. You know, we got to we got to since we're chatting here, Dan, there's a question that must be asked here and and that you don't see put forward. You know, what Russia basically says is, look, this is not just about Ukraine. You want to overthrow our country. 
You want to tear our country to shreds. You want to take our resources and divide them spoils amongst yourself. You just don't want to necessarily do it militarily, but you will if you think you can get away with it. And that's what Ukraine's about. Russia's saying you want to put missiles and everything in Ukraine so that you can physically threaten us and possibly maybe even one day invade through Ukraine. We see Ukraine as a military space and jump off spot to tear our country to shreds. It's an existential threat. Meanwhile, the uh, the U.S. coalition empire says, no, no, no. We're afraid that you'll attack us. And we just want to build up Ukraine and all of these states along the border to protect ourselves from a brutal and vicious attack that is eventually coming from you, from you guys. Dan, I think Russia was right based on the grand chessboard, amongst other things. So the question is this. Who's right? Oh, oh I, I think this. I think that that Russia is definitely right. I mean, I mean, the, the the U.S. demonization of Russia over the last ten years has been insane. But the but the U.S. you know march to 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 permanent warfare over the last twenty five years or thirty years has been even crazier. And and this you know this this march to warfare began in the began in the end of the Balkans when things exploded there in really spectacular fashion. But the, the problem was the U.S. blamed it all on Serbia. It was this very bizarre policy of the demonization of, of Serbia, which led inexorably to the demonization of Russia a few years later. So Russia, actually, actually in, in early 1999, uh, Russia and, 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 and Britain nearly came to blows uh, in in, uh, in Pristina, in what's now Kosovo, um, there was a military showdown, and uh, and there was nearly you know nearly uh, a, a collision, but it was averted at the last minute, and everyone sort of chuckled and and uh, and moved and moved along. But um, but but they, that that very one-sided, very aggressive, very violent U.S. behavior in the Balkans led to the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of, uh, of uh, Iraq, U.S. neocon support for an a, a Islamic fundamentalist uprising in Chechnya, uh, uh, the overthrow of Gaddafi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I mean within a few months after the death of Gaddafi, when, um, when, when um, Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, you know, was, was cackling and saying, uh, we came, we saw, he died. She was making clear threats about regime change in Russia. Now, that made Russia very, very nervous, very, very paranoid. And who's to say Russia was wrong? And, and, and then there was, of course, the, the utterly insane, completely insane Russiagate you know, hysteria, and it was nothing more than hysteria. It was nothing more than a giant, you know, um, a conspiracy theory floated by liberals. Um, and and, and that, that led to the most, the most extraordinary demonization of Putin in particular, who was presented as this demonic figure, this guy sitting in the Kremlin, you know, able to push buttons and cause all kinds of things to happen. You know, all over the world. I mean, Susan Rice, uh, Obama's um, national security advisor, even blamed the black 
the um, Black Lives Matter uprising uh, after the um, after the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. She actually said that she suspected that Russia had a hand in that. Russia, thousands of miles away, caused the caused the. Uh, you forgot. No, you forgot, Dan. You forgot, Dan. The truckers in Ottawa. That was that was Putin too. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's like you know, you know, now why not blame it on the Jews? You know, why not blame it on you know, on the on some kind of Jewish cabal somewhere? You know, pushing buttons and causing riots to break out all over the world. It, it, it was insane, and 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 this made Russia, you know, paranoid. And if the if the shoe was on the other foot. There's no doubt that 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 the U.S. would have reacted extremely violently to an anti-American hate campaign uh, that was that you know if one was taking place in Moscow. You know that in, in November, like last November, the U.S. and uh, the um, last November the U.S. and Ukraine entered into a joint security pact. One of which one of which's goals, one of which goals were to take back the Crimea. Now, what would have been the, what would have been the reaction in Washington or Tel Aviv if Syria and Russia had entered into a joint security uh, pact, the goal of which was to take back the Golan Heights? Uh, look, how about this? How about this? Russia and Mexico with the goal to be taking back all of that western part of the uh, U.S. that we took from Mexico. <laughs> right. Take back Texas. Actually, Mexico can have Texas, as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, but, but, but yeah, right. I mean, I mean, I mean the, the, the U.S. sort of going bonkers. And so there's the simple... The, the inability to put yourself in a, someone else's place. I mean, every mature person has that ability to see things from the other person's point of view. That's the mark of a, of a sane person. And an insane person is unable to do that. And so therefore, U.S. society, by that standard, has been insane over the last 20 or 30 years. And let me ask you this, Dan. And I know we're having this. I'm having fun now, so I'm just asking you all kinds of stuff. <laughs> you know, the way that the U.S. is sacrificing um, the Ukrainian lives, it's like, oh, boy, we'll set this killing field up. The Russian powerful military will come in and they'll just lots of Ukrainians will die. And then we can use that as an excuse to go after the Russians and vilify them worldwide. Oh, this is just wonderful. And maybe some Russians will die, too. And we're happy. So we're sacrificing the lives of Ukrainians and Russians for our nefarious neocon project. It seems to me now the EU has fallen into that battlefield. And in an economic war, there's going to be casualties. The plan was that the Russians would be the economic casualties in this economic war. Now that Joe Biden's is, is Joe Biden's literally out there saying, yeah, there's going to be food shortages and uh, people are going to suffer and some on their side and some on our side. In that economic war, the EU has now become Ukraine. They've now taken the place of Ukraine, and they're saying, look, we're the U.S. We can grow our own food. We can create our own energy. Things are going to get bad, but we can kind of probably make it. The EU 
you guys are screwed. And you know what? In the same way that we sacrificed Ukraine for the neocon project, EU, your turn. Now we're going to sacrifice your jobs, your livelihoods, heating your homes, your future. We're going to sacrifice all of that in the same way that we're sacrificing Ukraine. Is the EU now part two of the Ukrainian sacrifice, sacrificial lamb project? <laughs> I mean, yes. I, mean, I, I, I think one way, of, one way of looking at it is that, is that we have this, this global American empire, um, and the empire has been disintegrating for a long time. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, and in recent years, we've seen, you know, uh, war and collapse extend across much of the Middle East, much of North Africa, the Sahel, etc. Um, and, 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 and now with Ukraine, the fire, the, the flames have leapt to the edge of Europe. Okay. And I think what you're saying, which I think is absolutely correct, that we will see a, the circle of destruction widen to the point where it extends to the EU, where Germany will go into recession, where, you know, the, the Europeans are flooded by refu- refugees. And by the way, Biden is only taking 100,000 refugees, whereas the Europeans are taking a million. And, and that is a real cost, another real cost they must, they must bear. So, the, so, the, so, the, so the, the circle of destruction, the circle of decay is extending farther and farther and farther. Um, so the American empire, which, you know, which reached its apogee at some point in the 1990s, is now collapsing, and it's collapsing in disorder. It's collapsing in, in war and in, 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 in national you know, decay, like you know, national failure, states like Lebanon, Somalia, Iraq, et cetera, and, it's, and, and also the Ukraine, and it's also collapsing in terms of growing recession, unemployment, inflation, which is very dangerous, by the way, and, and a worldwide um, food crisis, which is going to have profound political ramifications. Remember, it was uh, the, um, the Arab Spring was caused by a dramatic uh, uh, uptick in, uh, in food prices. You know, uh, Dan, it seems to me that what we're doing is we're turning Europe into what we turned the Middle East into. We went in there and what did we do? We destabilized it. That's one thing economically preyed on it economically, destabilized it. Right. We destabilized countries all around it. So there were refugees going across this country and that country, refugees going all over the place. And we did something else. We empowered um, these outrageous, um, uh, uh, um, you know, jihadist, the worst people on the planet. We armed them. We uh, uh, gave them money. We trained them. We did all of that. And then we let them loose. And so they could run all over the Middle East and kill people and blow things up and terrible things. Right now we go to the EU, our supposed allies. What are we doing? Nazis. We are giving them all kinds of bombs and missiles, which ain't going to stay in Ukraine. They'll be running around seeking allies. They'll be trying to grow their evil Nazi movement. And there I've been around Europe a little bit. There's some people around there that will be happy to join them. 
So they're going to destabilize Europe with um, refugees running all over the place, stinking Nazis running around, blowing things up, trying to get people to join their Nazi movement. And it seems to me they're doing they're going to turn um, the EU into the Middle East. But the Middle East seems to be ready to turn its um, eyes to the east, to China, et cetera. And the, the Middle East may be trying to find a way to calm down while we throw gasoline and a match on the EU. Dan. Yes. I mean, there's actually a, a Rita Katz who runs a uh, who runs a, um, a an organization called the. Uh, uh, Site intelligence. Uh, it's an anti. It's a, it's a terror tracking, extremist uh, tracking group in Washington, uh, which is actually you know conservative and has its uh, has you know uh, works with the FBI and other intelligence uh, agencies around the world. Um, uh, but wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in which she said precisely this: that um, that there was a, a striking parallel between Afghanistan in the 80s. Syria in the teens and now the Ukraine in the 20s. And that is the war in Afghanistan essentially created al-Qaeda. And that led to, you know, to international, the phenomenon of international, you know, jihadi terrorism. Uh, the war in, in Syria, you know, led to a, a dramatic uh, growth on the part of al-Qaeda and of ISIS as well, which led to, you know, to violence across the Middle East, as well as in places like Paris, Santa Barbara, California, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and with, you know, and with huge political consequences. And she says, what, and what she said in the Washington Post is that essentially we are seeing, uh, you know, a huge influx of, of, of Nazis from around the world rushing to join the fight in the Ukraine. They're, they're, they're posting on, webs, on far-right websites saying, this is our moment. They're being given advanced weaponry, training, battlefield experience um, by, by NATO. They're going into battle, and we will see the same process where they will they will, you know, they will, it will lead to a multiplication of, of violence, extremist violence that won't just stay in the Ukraine, but will, you know, will spread all over the world. So, you know, the Christchurch killings in New Zealand, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Brevik murders in, uh, in Norway, we will see more of those, a dramatic increase in those, just as we saw a dramatic increase in, you know, in Al-Qaeda and ISIS activities, uh, you know, as a result of, uh, of Syria. Yeah, I think that the Europeans will look back one day on this moment and the palm of their um, hand will slap their foreheads and they'll say, what were we thinking when we did this? Dan Lazar, investigative journalist and author. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We, would, we look forward to talking with you all Monday right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.